Welcome back to Breast Friends Forever. I'm your host, Maddie, here with my producer, technical co-host, and bedmate, Joe. Hi, Joe. Hello. I'm here on the ones and twos. He's here on the ones and twos. So in our first episode, we talked just a little bit about um, my story with diagnosis and how I went into treatment. And then this half of the podcast is going to be all about that treatment and how it went and how it affected our lives and where I am now. And just as a reminder, Breast Friends Forever, the BFF pod, is a podcast that is meant to tell the stories of thrivers and survivors. So I look forward to learning more and hearing about more women's triumphs and the adversities they face with breast cancer and learning a whole lot. So I think we left off at the last episode. We were talking about we were talking about the weekend from hell, the longest weekend of our lives, which was when I was diagnosed on a Friday and did not have an appointment until the following Monday. And the following Monday, I had an appointment with a surgeon who is a general surgeon, but he has some sort of specialty in breast surgery too, not plastic, so just breast cancer surgery. So we met with the surgeon on Monday, and he broke it down to me, you know, either as you can get a lumpectomy, which is breast conservation surgery, or you can get a double mastectomy, which is more radical. And I feel like a lot, I feel like in those first appointments, I just felt like I was drowning. And I was so thankful to have Joe there with me. Because there was just so much to take in and Joe was there and would take notes and by the end of it, I just would feel exhausted. I couldn't even think of questions to ask even if I had them just because it was like an hour of someone talking at you and throwing tons of information at you about a subject you know nothing about and then you're expected to remember all of it and make a life-altering decision and it was just a lot. It was a lot to deal with. So we went to that first appointment and I think we were relieved to know that stuff was happening, but they had also said like, okay, well, here's your surgery date. It's two weeks from now. You need to decide by then if you want to have a double mastectomy, we'll make an appointment with a plastic surgeon in the city where we live. And so we said, okay. And then in the meanwhile, you know, I didn't know then, but what I know now is they were waiting for a more extensive pathology to refer me to an oncologist, but... I wanted to get the show on the road and I think that was kind of like the first self-advocacy that I showed was instead of waiting for my pathology and waiting for them to tell me what oncologists to see, I found a group of um, thrivers and survivors through YSC, my local chapter, and I just started asking women where they went. What is YSC? YSC is the Young Survivors Coalition. Thank you, Joe. So I, the first thing that I really did for myself after my diagnosis was make that appointment with the oncologist of my choice. Um, And the person I wanted to see was able to get me in. And so I think it was the following Friday, we went into the oncologist's office, had an appointment or maybe, well, I know that there was one day that we went into the oncologist's office and then went and saw the plastic surgeon. So maybe that was that day. Yes. Right. It was like four hours of appointments. Yeah, the double appointment day where we're calling. And we had to go back. It was... Oh, because we were going to do genetic testing. Yep, it was oncology, Mm -hmm. then the plastic plastic surgeon, surgeon, and then back to draw blood. Oncology. Oh, yeah. It was a long day. And again, just that feeling of like 
swimming through the thickest, most viscous substance you can imagine. You just feel like you're moving so slow and your brain can't comprehend it. But we met with the oncologist. I liked him all right. And one thing I remember is he was looking over my initial pathology and saying like, okay, well, it looks like we caught it really early. I'd be really surprised if it was in a lymph node. And he did an exam and said he didn't feel anything in my lymph nodes. So we left there feeling pretty good. Like, okay, you know what? This is best case scenario. It seems like it's still stage one or even stage zero if we're lucky, you know, depending on how big it is. And I, it's not as if that any of the oncologists made any promises to us. It's not like they said, yeah, we can guarantee it's stage zero or it's, it's stage one. But they definitely made us feel really hopeful in the beginning, don't you think? The diplomatic thing, I th- the way to put it, is that they emphasized every possibility of best case scenario. Right, and, right. And uh, probably did not temper... Um, expectations to a responsible level yeah so I guess like we left that first appointment with the oncologist and we were just like all right okay best case scenario let's get the show on the road let's do this and then we met with the plastic surgeon granted we don't live in a huge city we live in a city of about 300,000 people we live in the midwest we don't live in a super populous state so it's not as if we have these world-renowned hospitals on every corner like you would in New York or in LA And so my options for seeing a plastic surgeon in our town were kind of limited, but Joe's sister is a nurse anesthetist and we asked her opinion and, you know, she had worked with the guy I was going to go see. So we're like, okay, you know, like, let's, let's just go check it out. We'll see. Um, And we got there and I did not, I I did not like him (laughs) immediately. I did not like him. Um, It was another appointment of just this guy just like talking at us and... I mean, at what point did you feel like, okay, this this might not be a good idea? Uh, The first inkling was when his nurses insisted on giving us like a warning speech before he walked in about how. That's true. This is the, the nurse sat us down and she was like, listen, this doctor is not a personable person. He's not personable. He might come off cold and a little strange but he's just trying to do his job. She said he was really good at his job. She did say that. She did say that. She was that. like, but he's really good at his job. And we were just like, okay. And yeah, he was weird. Yeah, heavy <laughs> he, serial killer vibes. <laughs> he, you know, but really, like, I think he just embodied the bedside manner a lot of male plastic surgeons or surgeons have, which is just like, down to business, let me cut you open scalpel jockey is the term you later use but we'll get to that so you know we met with this guy and it was just tons and tons of information and you know I wanted to be informed I had done a lot of reading and research prior to those appointments prior to everything I did I read a lot about it because I felt like knowledge was power and I wanted to have that knowledge to know what was going to happen and so he was just repeating a bunch of shit that I already knew and it just was like okay 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 but I think really for me, like the the really clear thing where I was like, oh, mm-mm, I'm not letting this guy do it, operate on me was when they did not give me a gown and he just like made me undress in front of Joe and the two nurses there and him and then just like sit there with my tits out, no gown. And it just was like super awkward. And he was like, oh, yeah, blah, 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 like measuring stuff, which is normal. That's, you know, whatever. But 
that just like left a bad impression on me. And then I think he made a joke about breast size with you, didn't he? Like I swear he like said something that was like Oh, it was something about If it was my wife. We were exploring He was showing us the different kinds of implants and he like definitely made some joke about like oh how bit like about like how big are you wanting to go and then like uh how big does your husband want you to go kind of thing yeah. something that is just like come on like yeah, break just, the ice a different way just yucky I, I mean yeah just assuming that uh that, that factored that, into our decision husband, yeah and that husbands are sleazy and yeah so and that i would view you having breast cancer is like oh sweet upgrade. My, my wife's gonna get a sick rack out of this throw some like, titties on her yeah. yeah nonsense yeah it was weird and so you know we left that appointment and basically i had i had uh, like a week at that point less than a week i would say because i think the surgery was coming up like the following thursday or something like that and i had to decide what i was going to do and so we went back to the oncologist's office and then they took blood cuz they were going to do genetic testing and we i think we just sort of like talked about it and i just did not like the surgeon so i knew that if i was going to go ahead with plastic with a plastic and with the double mastectomy that i wanted to go to UNMC which is the big world renowned teaching hospital in Omaha they're really famous for their Ebola and COVID, their infectious diseases containment units. So, but also it's a teaching hospital. I think they're held to a different standard than people who work in private practice. So that was in the back of my mind. And with that, you know, we decided, okay, let's just get the tumor out of me. I remember one conversation we had. I mean, I distinctly remember us saying multiple times, I'm going to have to get used to having surgery as a cancer patient. A normal person would not have two surgeries in a year. A cancer patient would. And so we knew that we could do the lumpectomy and then choose the mastectomy later down the line. And so we went with the breast conservation surgery. We booked that appointment. I had surgery two weeks after my diagnosis and everything went well. Um, I had to do a sentinel lymph node biopsy, which was when they inject you with radioactive dye. They inject your tumor with it. It moves through the tumor and then shows them where the sentinel node is aka the node where the tumor is draining or possibly where the cancer is growing into. The day of surgery, Joe was able to go with me and wait because it was outpatient, which was a blessing because I was really nervous. And it was, you know, I had not really I had my tonsils removed, but otherwise I haven't had surgery. Oh, wait. No, never mind. Okay. I thought I missed IVF. Let me start that over. Bloop, 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 bloop. The day of surgery, Joe was allowed to be with me. So I had gone and I had had the radioactive dye injected in me in the clip and all the other, the marker they put in so that when you have surgery, they know where the tumor is and where the sentinel node is and they can take it out. Um, and Joe was able to come with me to the outpatient center where I had the surgery done, which was a blessing because I was really nervous. So we went. And I had the surgery, and it went as well as it could. They removed the tumor with clear margins, which means they basically cut the tumor out and then cut a margin of healthy tissue. And they took out four lymph nodes, one of which was positive. Did they tell us that then, though? No, they certainly did not. Oh, you're right. They didn't. Okay, so they told us they took out four lymph nodes. We went home. 
I spent the next two weeks recovering, which was, I don't know. And the the surgeon made a, a nice point of emphasizing to me that you had the smallest lymph nodes he'd ever seen and uh, that he he did a great, he told me he did a great job. So, you know, I spent the next two weeks recovering off work and it was fine. It wasn't that painful. My breast was, it looked like I'd been hit by a car. It was super black and blue and it was, bl- I had a huge hematoma for a long time. But, you know, we spent, I spent those two weeks recovering, really just kind of sitting on the couch, borrowing our friend's switch, watching a lot of TV, taking pain pills. And it was during that time that we decided to get a puppy because we had, you know, actually talked about trying to start a family this year. And that's, I could fill a whole episode talking about that, but, you know, that obviously was taken off the board with cancer and so I think I just like worked my magic and whined and convinced Joe into letting us get a dog and so you know we had we had sort of been like well maybe we'll wait towards the end of summer but we had started applying to some rescues and we were just really striking out we weren't having any luck they all the puppies would get adopted really quickly and then we got a call I think I was less than two weeks out from surgery we got a call from a place in Papillion And they said that a dog we had applied for named Johnny, who was this white Great Pyrenees mix, they were like, do you want to come meet him? And I was like, yeah, sure. When? They're like, today. And I was kind of like, okay. And they sort of made it seem like if you like him, you can take him home this afternoon. So we scrambled to get a dog. Now, I'm mentioning this not only because said dog is no longer named Johnny. We fell in love with him. His name is Basil. He weighs 90 pounds. He's massive. He's turning one next month. And we love him very, very much. Even though he's been a pain in the ass, he's also been a really big bright spot. But part of why we got a dog is because we were like, well, you know, after this, I'll probably just have to do radiation and then I'll be done. And, you know, radiation won't be that hard and it'll be okay. We can handle raising a puppy. No big deal. So we went and adopted the dog, fell in love. It was great. He was, he's always been huge. He was never tiny, but he was super cute. We brought him home. He was like an angel for the first two weeks. Just absolutely perfect. We were like, oh, let's call him Basil because he's mild and sweet. Hmm. Yeah, joke's on us. But, you know, we we adopted this dog under the pretense that treatment wasn't going to be that hard. It wasn't going to be that bad. So I, I believe I said with your May 15th diagnosis, I said, we we could aim to have treatment done by your birthday on at the end of August. I said the words. Yeah, well, I mean that again, we were just we were shooting for best case scenario and we really thought that I was going to go get out of it relatively unscathed. And I even remember thinking are people going to think of me as like a cancer patient because I'm going to have my hair, you know, because I didn't I didn't think I'd need chemo. The doctors certainly didn't before surgery. And so I just was like, oh, I'm not going to be a quote unquote real cancer patient because I'll have all my hair. So we, you know, fast forward, we had adopted this dog. He, we'd only had him like a few days. I, we had to go to my checkup with the surgeon, which we expected to just be like, yeah, no big deal. We cut out this little tumor here are next steps. And we go there and we're talking and it's all like, how are you? Oh, I'm good. Let me see your breast. Okay. Another doctor who made me just lift up my shirt and show him my boob did not 
give me a gown, which was a weird, that was kind of a traumatic thing for me that I had to talk about in therapy for a while. It just left a poor taste in my mouth. I think it made me feel like I was stripped of my bodily autonomy when having cancer already did that. So that was, I remembered like, it was not a good feeling. But then we're in this meeting, just kind of making small talk with the doctor. And then he's like, okay, so let's get down to business. And basically told us that joke was on you. Guess what? You had spread to a lymph node. So now you're stage two. And I just remember disassociating. I just remember sitting there and trying not to cry when he said that. I just felt like my spirit left my body. Because we'd walked into this meeting super confident, like, all right, we got this. He's going to tell us it's time for radiation. Like, here's what happened. Like, best case, blah, 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 blah. I just felt, I don't know, like my soul was crushed. You know, I just felt like my heart was breaking to to go from being so early, stage one, which is the best case scenario, to stage two, which is better, but not the best. And lymph node spread certainly isn't good. And up to up to that point, it's it's hard to emphasize how how much every doctor had just like hammered on like only the best case scenario conditions, just of like, oh, this is small. We caught it early. It's slow growing. It's easily it's uh, it's uh, grade one. It's easily distinguished. Yeah, it was like, well differentiated. Yeah, everything everything was was smooth sailing as far as their as far as cancer goes and our our expectations for more intense treatment were were not set properly right and i just we left the appointment and we got into the car and i just remember crying and being like oh my god because stage two sounds way more serious than stage one you know even if if I get technical, I think I'm borderline between stage 1B and 2A, but it doesn't matter because when you have lymph node spread, that's a huge differentiating factor than not having lymph node spread. Because when you have lymph node spread, that means you have micrometastasis, and that means that there's the possibility that breast cancer cells have traveled throughout your body, and they could land on your liver or your brain or in your bones, and that's really scary. So I just remember I got in the car and cried. I cried and then we were desperately trying to call the oncologist's office like what have we learned can you help us can you get us in and this was a Thursday again or was it no it was a Thursday it was a Thursday Thursday. so again we were approaching another weekend and we had called and left a message didn't hear anything back we called the next day I think I called two or three times you called at least once and it was finally after Joe called and was like no I didn't hear back till Monday you didn't hear back till Monday we okay had to wait the whole weekend again okay so we had to wait the whole weekend again and finally then it, that's right it was Monday that you called and had said like what is my wife needs to talk to someone what is going on Joe basically had to try and strong arm them to get us past the front desk we couldn't even speak to a nurse which now, if, if someone told me that, knowing what I know now, I'd be like, you need to go to a different oncologist. Yeah. So we basically had Foreshadowing. to... Foreshadowing. Yeah. We basically had to force our way into an appointment with this doctor to be like, tell us what to do. Like, we are we are scared. And basically, they had wanted to wait to meet with me because they were doing an oncotype. And so they had wanted to wait until like a month after surgery to go over my oncotype and my genetic test results. And I just didn't want to wait for that after I had gone from what I thought was best case scenario to stage freaking two with lymph node involvement. 
So they were kind of like, well, we'll give you an appointment if you want. And we were like, yeah, we want. Please, like, let us see the doctor. And I remember in that appointment, and I don't even know if we talked about the oncotype then. I don't think we did. Or did we? We had to wait for... Did we wait? We did I think wait they kind of bit, were like, well, you could come in. Okay. Obviously, my memory is a little fuzzy. That was like, that feels like a bajillion years ago. Yeah. We waited and we got into the doctor's office maybe like a week or so later because we wanted to hear back about the oncotype. Um, and I think we were waiting for genetic test results too. I don't know. I'm not going to get this part of the story right. But when I just what I do remember is being in that appointment and talking to the doctor and him kind of being like, oh, sorry, you couldn't get a hold of me. Uh, in the future, you can just email me directly if you have any questions. And I just remember being so frustrated that I started crying. And I said, you know, I'm not just a name on a chart. I'm a person and this might not seem like the worst cancer you've ever seen, but it is scary and it is very real to me. And I think that I made him feel really bad by crying. And I think I, but I think I humanized myself by telling them like I was frustrated because I had heard this really scary news that I was stage two and I needed to talk to someone. And we had to wait all weekend and it was miserable. It was miserable having no guidance. And he kind of was like, oh, I'm sorry, blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, he's a nice enough guy. He's not a bad guy. He just, I don't. Let's just say that that interaction completely spurred me to get a second opinion. And I'm so glad I did. But we found out, you know, after the lumpectomy and the pathology came back that I did have a genetic mutation, which is called ATM. Uh, No one in my immediate family has ever had breast cancer. None of my grandmas, none of my aunts, my dad only has brothers. And we were convinced it was from my dad's side because a great aunt had had breast cancer. And I just, I bear like, I bear such a resemblance to my dad's family that we were like, okay, we know it's from their side. So we were preparing them to all get tested. And then we found out it was from my mom's side. And my mom was the carrier. Well, my mom's mom passed away in 2002 from lung cancer because she was a smoker. So there was no way to test her. My mom's dad didn't want to get tested. My brother didn't want to get tested. So as far as we know, my mom and I are the only ones with this mutation. And it's it's a pathological mutation, which means it does cause cancer. So that happened. And we got my oncotype score back. And it was a 20, which means... Because I'm under age 50, it was right on the borderline, really, of whether or not chemo would be a benefit or not. But this first oncologist said, if you were my family member, I would tell you to do it. Even though the benefit percentage was not super high, right? It was like 3% maybe. The doctor basically told me, do it. He used an analogy that was like, when you are weeding a garden, you can pluck out the weeds They might come back, they might not, or you can use weed killer and spray the areas where they were and make sure they don't come back. Not that he was guaranteeing I wouldn't get cancer again, but that's basically the analogy of how he explained chemo. So he had sort of said like, okay, if I'm treating you, here's what I would do. You would do chemo. You would have to do 16 rounds of it over a course of 20 weeks or something like that, right? It's like just I would have been doing chemo I don't think I would have ended until like the end of November. We might have the math wrong, but I would have been doing chemo a long time. So, you know, there was no escaping chemo. He said, you do chemo and then, you know, if you do the double mastectomy, you don't need radiation. But 
if you don't have the double mastectomy, then you will need radiation. So we were like, okay. And at that point, because I knew I had the gene mutation, I was like, I'm going to do the double mastectomy. I just can't imagine keeping my breasts if they're ticking time bombs. It's not as if I was one of the women who didn't have that genetic connection who just got breast cancer for whatever reason. It was because of something that is wrong with how my genes operate how my dna is and i didn't want to give my body the chance to give itself cancer again so it was around this time that we started exploring unmc and you know i'd asked to be referred to a surgeon there by the first oncologist i was seeing and when i was on the phone with whoever a care coordinator whoever they are at unmc who schedules appointments the woman i spoke to was like wait a minute you had a lumpectomy before they found out whether or not your cancer was genetic? And I was like, yeah. And she was disturbed by that. She was like, "Ah, well, I can't believe they would do that. And so while I was on the phone with her, she was like, look, you're coming up to meet with a breast surgeon here. Why don't you just meet with one of our oncologists? There is an amazing woman up here, Dr. Reed. Shout out to Dr. Reed. She is a breast cancer expert. Just meet with her, get a second opinion and see what you think. And I was like, okay, yeah, why not? So we ended up going to that meeting and I just, I knew it was, I mean, like right away, there wasn't any back and forth. We both were like, okay, I'm switching doctors. I'm going to start seeing Dr. Reed, who is awesome and so research and data-based because she's also a professor. So I think that makes a lot of sense. We loved my surgeon. Her name was Dr. Maxwell, also a wonderful person. And then, you know, they were going to refer me to a plastic surgeon that was affiliated with the teaching, with UNMC, with Nebraska Medicine. Um, And I had really wanted to get in to see a doctor named Dr. Wong because she is just like a legend amongst the breast cancer community in eastern Nebraska. Just like she's the best at what she does. Everyone loves her. She's amazing. So we went to that appointment and I just feel like I knew who my team was. And it was really the first time that it felt like, okay, I trust these people. I think team is the the big yeah. victory there is that it, a place like we, – what we learned is that you kind of can get your cancer care in one of two forms, which is either you go to a like a cancer center where they – they create a team for you that every where they discuss every type of uh, treatment they could throw at your cancer, be it radiation or chemotherapy or surgery. There's a team of oncologists there who specialize in each type of treatment, mm-hmm. and they look at your unique case, and they craft a treatment plan for you. And every step of the way is just one part of a comprehensive plan. They actually call it a tumor board. A tumor board. A tumor board. Which is, that's very common. That's what big hospitals do. They make up a board of doctors and they decide on a plan together. And I think that the the benefits of that are so huge compared to the situation we first found ourselves in, which is... Bouncing from doctor to doctor. Yeah, da, da, and, every, da, da, da. and every doctor has their own practice. And, and you have to use and, different logins and look, yeah, to get information. Yeah, and you have... And, and more important, and or more uh, tediously, you have to be the communication channel between every one of your doctors. They're not proactively communicating with one another. You have to be the person to send those messages and that's a ridiculous load to put on 
people with cancer or their caretakers or yeah their caretakers. it's a lot yeah. and that's we really liked that we liked the comprehensive care that we found at unmc or nebraska medicine unmc is the teaching hospital nebraska medicine is the practice but i kind of use them interchangeably but yeah we really we just we liked it and we just i don't know i felt relieved I felt relieved because we went up there and I just had one appointment after the other. So I was just like meeting everyone that day. And it just, it was like, okay, I trust these women. And I, and yeah, I wanted a team of women. That was part of it. My entire cancer team is made up of women doctors. And I love that. Well, and the gown thing. The gown thing. You're right. I have never, now that all of my doctors are women, I've never been told to just lift up my shirt. And just like whip out my boobs. They always would pull, the nurses always pulled a curtain for me and say, here's your gown. I mean, I felt like my body was respected more. I felt like my body and I were one. Not that my body had cancer. And then the name on the chart was separate from that. Which made a huge difference. And one reason why we went with Dr. Reed is because she had said, well, here's what evidence suggests. And I'm basing my plan off evidence. And so she said because of my age, because I was younger and I was otherwise healthy, that she was going to have me do dose-dense chemo. So that meant I would only have to do eight infusions. And, you know, she said we could revisit radiation at the end of that, depending on how it went. And if I went ahead with a double mastectomy, I might not need it. So we said okay. We left with a plan. We left with a plan. And it was like the first time, I think, we didn't feel like we were grasping at nothing it just felt like okay now we know what's gonna happen the plan was my mantra for a while well we kind of skipped over the fertility aspect of well no because we went and we had a plan well the fertility was part of the plan as well it was because we had to we had to do egg retrieval before you could start chemo yeah i know oh shoot so Gosh, if you guys can't tell, it's just there's been a lot of stuff that's happened to me. Before chemo, I did do an egg retrieval. I did do IVF. And I can't remember if we had met with Dr. Reed after that or not. I think maybe I had started doing IVF when we met with Dr. Reed then. I don't think so. No? I think that because that was all part of the plan is that Mm. before we did anything, we had to figure out. Before the chemo dates got set, we had to figure out when that's the right, that's right. was set, which we had to figure out what the two weeks of oh, yeah. pr- of prior hormone treatment before the end. Oh, it was so much. It's like hearing it now, I'm just like, oh my God, we're, we were crazy. Like we did all of that. We had a little puppy who we were <laughs> like trying to housebreak and train and teach not to be a monster. And on top of that, we had all of this stuff we had to do. I can't believe I almost failed to mention the whirlwind that was the two weeks that we did IVF because that was bananas and so much work (laughs) for both of us. That was a weird laugh, but it was, it was a lot of work. Uh, I basically, we spent two weeks where Joe would inject me with hormones multiple times a day. He'd stab me in the gut with shots or I would do some of them. And then we would go up to Omaha where the clinic was, the fertility clinic, and I would have to get a vaginal ultrasound and they would try and count my uh follicles Follicles. my follicles i think one of the worst parts about ivf now for me is learning how fertile i was that that makes me really sad i was really fertile my body was like primed to have a baby and then it decided to get cancer so i still struggle with that 
we did the whole process of IVF. It was a lot. It was a lot of work. Sometimes we would take the dog with us to appointments. And I remember the first time we took him, because Joe had to wait in the car, you know. So I remember the first time we took him, he threw up in the car. (laughs) He got car sick. Yeah. We did IVF and I did an egg retrieval. And I had 16 eggs, which is great. They they usually aim for 8 to 10. So my little eggies are on ice waiting for us to use them, which won't be for a while. One thing we'll have to do, too, prior to fertilizing the eggs and doing the IUI, which is intrauterine insemination, is that Joe's going to have to get genetic tested. Because if we both have the ATM gene, then our children could inherit a whole list of Yeah, the double problems. ATM is... Yeah, I don't remember what that's called. To, can pr- mine is, so mine's heterozygous, which means it just comes from one parent. Yes. Yeah. So we did IVF and it was a whirlwind and I was hormonal and my belly got super swollen. And it was actually during this time too that I cut all my hair off because we were preparing for chemo. We knew that as soon as we had an uh, the end date of my egg retrieval that I would start chemo pretty much within the same week. So during this process, I was cutting my hair off, getting ready for chemo, which was very hard. Um, I did it gradually. I sort of went from long to a bob to like a short a pick a longer pixie to a short pixie and I bleached it I was trying to have fun with it but it was I got a lot of compliments on it but it was hard I was very sad and that is one thing that I have been just very downtrodden about through this whole thing is my hair because I had beautiful hair it was so thick and soft and wavy and people always complimented me on it and maybe you're asking well why didn't you cold cap but it was just too expensive insurance doesn't cover it and I just you know we had already had to borrow money from our parents to pay for IVF I didn't think that I could ask I'm sure I could have asked for more to do cold capping but part of me just didn't want to either I was like I want to sleep through chemo if I can I don't it seems painful it's a lot of work that being said I've had friends who've done it and their hair looks amazing so good for them I mean that good for them their hair looks great So we prepared for chemo and didn't know what to expect. We basically did the egg retrieval, called them and said, okay, it's happened. And they, the hospital or Nebraska med said to us, okay, here's the date you're going to get your chemo port placed and then you'll start surgery or you'll start chemo three days later. And that's how it went. I had to go have the, the, it's called a catheter, a portacatheter. It is a device they place into the arteries in your neck and chest, and it allows chemo to travel directly to your heart. So I had to do that, and it was not pleasant. I mean, it was fine. It just was always uncomfortable and weird, and it was strange, too, knowing that, okay, chemo starts in a few days. So then I went to my first chemo, and I did... I, yeah, so I did the ACT cocktail, which is adriamycin, I can't say, adriamycin, cytos, cytoxin, and taxol. That might be right. That actually might be right. Anyway, it's better known as the Red Devil because the side effects are so terrible. So I started chemo. And, you know, it wasn't... 
Describing what chemo's like to people is so hard because it wasn't as bad as I thought or as movies and pop culture had led me to believe. Like I thought it was going to be like having the stomach flu, constantly vomiting 24-7 for an entire week. Your mileage varies with it. And so it wasn't what I expected, but it also wasn't fun. Uh, And I, I spent the first two months of chemo feeling just gross because I would get really, really nauseous. And it would be, I never stopped eating completely, but it was hard for me to find things that I wanted to eat. And I still have food aversions from that time period. I, I ate ginger candies too much, so now the thought of that makes me want to vomit. Strawberries. Strawberries. Ugh, I ruined strawberry for myself because I had strawberry popsicles. Because I also got mouth sores, so my mouth would be really tender and it would hurt. I also, towards the end of that chemo, towards a, the end of AC, I developed mouth Wait, not mouth sores. My taste was different. My, I had metal mouth. Everything tasted metallic, and I'd always would say, my mouth tastes like a penny. So it ruined the taste of things. I also remember after that first chemo, we got Chinese food, and, and I got, like, chicken and broccoli, and it was so salty. It was just disgusting. I was like, I can't. I cannot eat this. It's gross. So really, during the first half of chemo, my diet became that of, like, a little kid because I would, like, I would eat chicken nuggets Mac and cheese, cheeseburgers, and french fries. Instant mashed potatoes. A lot of electrolyte drinks. I would do a lot of those. And I wasn't sleeping because I was on so many steroids. The steroids were absolutely the worst aspect, I think. Worse than the nausea. They made me feel bonkers, just like I was out of my mind and, you know, you what happens is when they put you on all these steroids, it's basically to prevent your body from freaking out from the toxic drugs that you're getting sent straight to your heart. Uh, and they just made me feel terrible. I was so anxious on them. I couldn't sleep when I would come down from them, which was usually like the Tuesday. My fusions were a Friday, so like the Tuesday after, I just would start to feel terrible I'd feel like my skin was crawling how did I describe it do you remember there was a certain way I used to describe it I think I said it felt like there were ants under my skin or something like electric ants it just was awful and plus like when I would have to get on the steroids and I wouldn't sleep because I'd be super hyped up from them it was just terrible what do you remember from that time the first half of chemo my main memories of chemo is just sitting in a car definitely not uh the side effects of someone who has those toxins pumped into their body. But I mean, I'd say COVID changed uh, cancer caretaking a lot in that I couldn't be there through the important stuff uh, directly with you. So, I mean, every infusion Friday was me sitting in my car in a parking lot. Because it didn't, because we were going to get chemo 45 minutes away from where we lived it just I don't know it didn't make a ton of sense for Joe to have to spend two hours in a car driving back and forth so yeah so it was uh it was me sitting in a car with books and trying to watch uh going over on cell phone data plans trying to watch basketball games in the car and and we will talk about this there will will down the line we will have an episode where we go into greater detail because i think your story is important and we do need to tell your perspective but it was just a lot 
it was a lot sprung onto us and we'd only been we were newlyweds and all of a sudden we went from being like should we have a baby like that was kind of the thing that we were sort of like not arguing but couldn't agree on like what how soon to have a baby to okay now we are in the role of cancer patient and caretaker (laughs) that changed so quick it was just miserable summer sucked because all summer I was doing chemo and we shaved our heads together. We did shave. We our did heads shave our heads together. together. Around the second, they always tell you with ACT, around the second infusion is when, or at least the part of AC, the second infusion is when your hair starts to fall out. And mine did, so it was cut short into a little blonde pixie, which was very cute. I got a lot of compliments, but I would. What would happen is I could. It's not like you run your hands through your hair and then like, oh, a bunch falls out. It's that your hair, if you tuck on your hair as it is now, it has resistance, right? There's follicles. There's a root. Your hair is not falling out. But with the chemo, it just falls out when you pull on it. It just comes out. And so I got sick of pulling it out and just said, okay, let's shave it, which I knew would happen. Like I, we had planned to do it. Joe was nice and shaved his head with me, shaved his beard, which was not as nice, but he had an interesting mustache for a while. It was a, it was one way to look. We'll just leave it at that. There have been worse mustaches. There have been worse mustaches, but so we shaved our heads and then, you know, no one tells you this, but during chemo, you don't you don't go bald bald. It's not like shiny head bald. You have peach fuzz. So after my hair really fell out when I shaved it, then I just kind of had weird white fuzzy hair until the end of chemo, until basically I shaved it again. But the first half of chemo was rough. But, you know, the thing with AC is I'd feel really crummy for like a week. So I would have my infusion Friday. I'd have Saturday, Sunday, Monday to recover. And Tuesday I was back at work. So Tuesday through like Thursday, maybe Friday, sometimes I was really hitting the anti-nausea meds hard. Like I really had to take Zofran around the clock. And it, it, made, it did make work hard. It was very hard to work through chemo. I'm glad that I did it, but it was tough. But the good news is after that, the week leading up to my next infusion, I'd feel fine. I felt totally normal. And then I'd be like, oh, man, like I'm going to have to go to chemo and this is all going to go down the drain. I think that that's what I when I when we realized the cycle of chemo is that they give you just long enough so you feel good enough to get another dose. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I did dose tense. Too. Yeah. So it, which it, is I, I've heard not that I know any better. I've heard dose dense is a lot tougher. Yeah. And it, it would it would always be as an observer it was it would be sad to see you feel great on a on the second thursday after your treatment and know that that was like the first day that you felt normal and it was because like feeling normal is the sign that you're one day away from Mm -hmm. starting it over again i did so i did four acs and then i started taxol which taxol you know people would ask me well which which part of chemo was worse and it's just hard to say because they were so different for me. I mean, AC was all, it was all nausea. It was taste. It was everything that you would associate with food and drinking. And that was really, really hard. Taxol gave me, I was, I had my appetite back. I didn't have weird taste bud issues anymore, but I had terrible, terrible bone pains. bone pains. It felt like having the flu. I mean, the body aches were just insane I don't want to say insane bananas I I made it so I did the first round of taxol and I tried to just make it through with Tylenol and Aleve and I I just it was horrible I couldn't I wasn't sleeping because I was in so much pain so it was like a week straight of bone and muscle pain 
Not to mention on top of all this, I was also getting a shot called Nulasta, which is a growth factor shot, which makes your white blood cell count raise because chemo drops your count so low. So they give you this shot to, to stimulate growth colonies in your bones. So it sucked. I mean, I just felt really shitty. I did not feel good. And then we knew that going into the second taxol. And so my doctor then gave me a prescription for oxycodone, which really did help. I felt weird taking the pain pills, but it was like the only thing that worked. And so I would take those for like the first few days after the infusion. And then by the end, I would feel normal and I wouldn't need them. And so in that sense, taxol was easier, you know, just because I felt like if I stayed on top of the meds, I felt okay. I could eat. I didn't really exercise during that part of chemo when I had been because my body hurt so much. But it wasn't this, I mean, it was just different than being nauseous all the time. A weird thing about chemo too is your bodily fluids have chemo in them for like three days or a week or something. So when you flush the toilet, you have to double flush. You're not supposed to expose anyone to vaginal secretions. Yeah, they... I think this is the funniest thing we experienced in chemo is that we thought that we had to start using condoms when we would have sex mm-hmm. because we didn't want to poison Joe. Yeah. With my vagina. Until we learned that the chemo is out of those fluids after a few <laughs> days. And our big question is who finishes up a dose of chemo and then like wants to go home and like smash their brains out. Like, uh, Yeah. I don't know who that person is. If, write us i want to interview you if you are that person all power to you yeah let me know yeah so you know i wrapped up chemo in october and by then i was really really bald and i mistakenly was like haha my eyebrows and my lashes i kept them all through chemo i can do anything i'm invincible and you know at the end of chemo we knew that i was having my double mastectomy a month later they said okay one month after chemo I was able to get in with the plastic surgeon I wanted, Dr. Wong. I was able to have Dr. Maxwell, who was the surgeon I met with initially when we went to Nebraska Med. And so we were just like, okay, a month a month of downtime, and then it's surgery. And then it came, and I did the surgery. I was really scared to do it by myself. I've, I was never scared to do it, you know, and I accepted that I might need to go flat if it didn't work out. I accepted that if I had an infection... I might not have breasts at all, but it was worth it to me. It's always been worth it. Even when it was, the recovery was terrible. It was worth it just to know that I don't, I won't be able to give myself breast cancer again in the same way that I did before. Doesn't mean I won't have a recurrence, but I don't have breast tissue anymore. And I, people think I'm cuckoo because I came home the day of my surgery I didn't, you know, with COVID, the hospitals were packed and there was a huge wait for a room and I was in this surgical bay and I just was like, I want to go home. I think I was on a lot of pain meds. I think that really influenced my decision. I was like, yep, call my husband, tell him to come and get me. I'm going home. And I did. I went home that night and I was so lucky that I was able to utilize a program called Chairs to Recovery, which had loaned me um, a recliner to sleep in because we didn't have something like that and I could not have slept in bed because I had four drains no I had three I had three drains I had a wound vac it was just a lot of stuff a lot tell me if I'm wrong but this seemed like the hardest part of cancer treatment I think it was 
it was the hardest part of cancer Surgical treatment. Surgical recovery, yeah. Surgical recovery was. And it wasn't necessarily because I was in tons and tons of pain. I really, I wasn't. Like, my pain was pretty managed, but it was just the feeling of having all these tubes coming out of your body. We had to strip the drains, which was gross. That used to make me, I, the first few times we did it, I got faint. I, I got dizzy and would feel hot and, like, I was going to throw up. And I couldn't sleep in bed with Joe, so I was sleeping in a recliner. And because I was on pills all the time, I just my sleep schedule was really strange, and I was tired from it, and it was just uncomfortable. And I I did feel really low. And also, this is when my eyebrows and my eyelashes fell out, so I was really bald, and I looked really really sick, even though, you know, I was better than I had been in months. Uh, yeah, it was hard. It was really lonesome too. I think like those long nights by myself, staying awake. I just felt really isolated and I couldn't shower. It was hard. It was very hard. Yeah. And I couldn't I couldn't lift things. I couldn't get myself a glass of water. I mean, I was so dependent upon Joe. And it's not Joe was great. Joe was a trooper. He was an amazing nurse. He did such a good job of managing the house and taking care of the pets and everything, but it's hard to feel helpless. It feels really shitty. We were worried I wasn't gonna be able to wipe my butt, so we got a second bidet. Thankfully, I was able to do that. But also, the second bidet was a good idea, regardless of get a bidet recovery. Get a bidet. We'll your, touch on that later. Your butt deserves it. Yeah, it's worth it. But it, yeah, I mean that. I just felt. I don't know. I felt low. I remember crying a lot, and I just felt. I felt really broken. Like, I think that was, I think all through chemo, I did such a good job of just, like, shoving everything down and powering it, powering through. That's all I wanted to do was just get through it. Like, go to the next thing. Go to the next thing. Like, finish this round of chemo. Finish this round of chemo. I just want to be one step closer to being done. And so I didn't, I didn't really cry a lot, like, once chemo started, you know? Like, I was pretty stoic about it all. And then it was just, like, dark night of the human soul you know like just this reckoning with everything that had happened to us and to me and it was hard and it broke my heart and I, I cried a lot it made me really sad you were still a trooper I tried but it was during this time too that you know we went I don't remember how many weeks it was it was probably like two weeks right after my surgery oh should mention I also had an axillary lymph node dissection uh, which means they took a ton of my lymph nodes. They took levels one and two lymph of the lymph nodes out of my armpit, and their, their reasoning was because I had lymphovascular invasion, which means that the cancer that was in the one lymph node and in my breast was on its way to other lymph nodes. It was spreading. And so if I didn't do that big axillary lymph node dissection, then I would have had to do radiation. Well, one thing you learn when you have to get a double mastectomy is that you know, radiation can destroy your foobs, your fake boobs. Radiation can make them look really uneven. You can get what's called capsular contracture, which is when you have a bunch of hard scar tissue and that can be painful and tight. And so it just wasn't something I wanted to do, but we knew it was kind of a risk. We knew that, you know, I could do it and they could remove the lymph nodes, but if the pathology came back positive for cancer, then I had to do radiation anyway. But we were willing to try it. But the doctors seemed confident. We figured if they're confident, we can we can trust them. We can do it. During my recovery, I had an appointment scheduled with my oncosurgeon to come back and discuss the pathology, which is 
all of the breast tissue they took out, all of the lymph nodes they removed, and that was when we would find out if I was cancer-free or not. So we went up to Omaha, and it was November 23rd. It was snowing. It was cold. And I was nervous. I was playing I was playing Sufjan Stevens songs and crying on the way up there, which was devastating. That's a pretty difficult thing to sit sitting through Casimir Pulaski Casimir Pulaski Day. Just watching your wife stare out the window and cry as she holds your hand. Yeah. Driving yeah. to the the big cancer the big finale of cancer season one. <laughs> yeah, you really. Know. I was scared. I was really scared. You know, I didn't know what to expect, and I think because we had been let down in the beginning, where we thought it was stage one, where we thought there were no lymph nodes, I didn't want to get my hopes up. I believe you said, I'm sorry, but I need to hurt myself, and then proceeded to make a playlist of The National and Sufjan Stevens. I did say that. (laughs) You know what? You can be melodramatic when you have cancer. It's fine. It's true. So I did. I cried the whole way up there. I was so scared. I just... I did not want more bad news, and I but I didn't want to convince myself that there would be good news. But we got to the appointment. I was still so anxious. We were in the waiting room. I was still crying. And then nurse came in, and she was an APRN, and so she was like, how are you guys? And we both were just kind of like, well, pretty nervous to find out what you're going to say. And she was like, oh, well, I'll just cut to the chase. You're cancer-free. And it just was like... It felt like winning the Oscars, you know? It just felt like relief just like flooded my entire body. And I just felt like, oh my God, we did it. We did it, you know? There were there were definitely some like endorphin gates that hadn't been opened in months that like right. came like flooding. Right. It just felt amazing that it worked. That So I had a complete response and was declared no evidence of disease, which was fantastic i it probably one of the best days of my life couldn't have asked for something better because had i had to do radiation on top of having those lymph nodes i certainly would have gotten lymphedema which is basically swelling to the limb on the side you've had nodes removed so it was just a relief it was just like our life can start again at least our regular pre-cancer pandemic life yeah yeah but that sort of brings us up to speed to where we are now, I've just been recovering from the surgery since then. I went through PT, feeling really good. I'm feeling really happy. I have hair. I have, a, I have hair. It kind of just looks like I shaved my head. My eyebrows grew back. My eyelashes grew back. And yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy. I feel like... I don't know. I mean, I still, I still think I have things to unpack from the experience, but I felt like I didn't feel happy for like seven eight months however long it was and now i wake up and i have things to be to smile about and it feels really good 